Welcome to Geek on Film with your hosts, Robbie Holmes and John Hoche. Howdy, folks. Welcome to episode 11 of Geek on Film. Uh, I'm Robbie and like to welcome my partner in crime. Hey, guys, it's John. What's going on? Episode 11, 1 1. Yeah. Double, double, double ones, baby. So much going on. Uh, I feel like we say that every week now, but uh, I ended up getting a COVID booster and my flu shot on Friday night, on Friday morning. Uh, so by Saturday, I was uh, I was basically exhibiting flu-like symptoms for the rest of the weekend. So I just doubled down and watched all these movies. My wife's out of town, and uh, you'll hear that uh, a lot. There's a lot of movies this week. <laughs> oh my um, gosh! <laughs> uh, let's kick it off with She-Hulk. How about that? Uh, do you want to run us through this episode, John? Yeah, man. Uh, so we're coming down to the wire. We have we've got I, I believe we've got one episode left after this one, and you know, man, this show. I, first and foremost, I think from previous episodes, you can tell that I do like this show. I always say that I wish it was longer. That's the only thing that I have to kind of complain about. It's like, oh, I just wish it was longer. Schlonger? No. <laughs> I just wish it were longer. Um, if only you were a little bit taller. Yeah, right. a baller. Yeah. Uh, but we we got what everyone's been complaining about on the internet. And then once you get it, you just continue to complain about it. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so we, so in this episode, uh, we finally get the appearance of Matt Murdock and Daredevil, one and the same. It's really exciting, and I thought it was a really great episode. We got to, we got to see um, She Hulk, aka Jen Walters, in her, you know, her superhero suit, and she got to do some fighting. And I don't think we've seen her like really, really fight since. Maybe the pilot. I know she fought Titania at the wedding and everything, but um, you know it was fun to kind of, you know, see her be a superhero and and um, and it was like it was it was kind of refreshing. And um, you know, I don't want to be like a like I I love the show, I really do, but like um, maybe I'm just like coming to grips with the fact that like I'm I'm as far as my Marvel goes, like I, I totally love that this is here. And, and like it was a legal drama and stuff like that, but like man, seeing She Hulk fight, I was like, yeah, okay, this is yeah. what I've been missing this whole time. You know, like the superhero part of She Hulk is something I really missed. Um, and I thought that I thought that I loved where Daredevil's going, and everyone's complaining that he's like smiling and joking and he's happy, and I'm like, dude, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think it was great. Um, what did you think about this episode? I really liked it. Uh, this is one of my favorite episodes of the show up to this point. I think we got to see two people who have genuine chemistry on screen together. I think uh, we got to see a little bit of all the aspects of Jen Walters that we want to see. Uh, mm -hmm. We got a chance to see her being a lawyer, being a human, being She-Hulk, right? Like yeah. personal aspects of her life. Totally. I think like, this is the sort of most balanced episode we've seen up to this point of like yeah. it all comes together. Yeah. Um, and, you know, she and was I like think, being vulnerable, being horny, being, yeah. you know, like, yeah, it was great. Uh, Charlie Cox is charming. He's ridiculously charming. And I'm so glad that they didn't recast him. Uh, I, I think hang in there if you want to see a very sad uh, Matt Murdock. I think if we get the show that I think it's that, that we're going to get, it could be very down and very dour. 
So all I'm saying is people let Daredevil have a little fun. Let let Matt Murdock not be sad right now. It's totally fine. Yeah, but also so so in in this episode we get the the um the ketchup and mustard suit, the red and yellow suit as f- versus the the red Daredevil suit. And um and I I I'm I'm contemplating and wondering if this is the same Daredevil as the Netflix show. Or they just cast the same person, and this is just a variant, or, or you know, those the Daredevil show, even though it is on uh, Disney Plus right now, like if this is a different continuity, and we it, just have it, a multiverse situation going on it's here. It's very possible. I, I think the other thing that's interesting is I, I think this the comic book accuracy of this suit is pretty good. If you go back to the '60s and the '70s, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it's based on his father's trunk colors uh, mm-hmm. when he was a boxer. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of history with this character. Uh, Daredevil is one of my favorite characters for a really long time. Um, and I really love that run in the early 90s when he gets un- like he one of the common storylines with Daredevil tends to be he gets unmasked. Mm. Um, and there's a whole bunch of really great storylines where that is the case. Uh, but there's one where he's unmasked and has to go to court and it's and then somebody else comes and plays Daredevil. And um so it's a really fun uh, storyline where that happens. But that was like when I was, I don't know, like it might have been 88, 89. So I was like 14, 15. It was like right. when I was actively reading Marvel comics as a mm-hmm. kid. Um, so for a while, Daredevil was my character. So I, I just think the reality here is uh, the show is is different than what people expected. Uh, I'm enjoying it. It's not always my favorite show of the week, but this was probably my favorite episode of the series because of the balancing act that we got to see Tatiana Mislani go through yeah. as all the aspects of what Jen Walters and She-Hulk is. Well, also, the, I mean, so we get like a pretty, a pretty great, dare I, I'm not going to say perfect, but like closest to perfect episode, I feel like um, here. In, um, because you're like, we got all the beats and all the, the things that, that, you know, like that Robbie has just mentioned. Like, we get all of that, right? And then, like, and the silly re- legacy character, right? Like, yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, Leapfrog. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I always thought his name was Frogman, though. I swear I just got a, I have a Marvel action figure and his name is Frogman. Do, uh, does it but, say Ribbit and Rip It? Because if it doesn't, it's not the same character. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> But um, we get like a really great episode, and then all of a sudden, um, the the audience is still there, and then Tatiana Maslany is like staring at us, and we're like, "Why are you still here?" Um, and then she like it gets awkward and uncomfortable, and I thought that was really cool. And then all of a sudden, the, we go to like this big um, award ceremony that uh, she thought would be in the next episode, but we we get this award ceremony. And like something really inter- interesting happens here, and and I think this is the the moment that it's kind of solidified um, for the television show that like like cancel culture and toxic masculinity are the villains of this 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 television show. Like there doesn't have to like if the leader doesn't show up uh, next episode, I could give a fuck because like they're like it's literally like Marvel and Disney are just trying to like like put a mirror up to like most of their fan base yep. and saying like, you guys are the problem. Um, because like uh, big spoiler, uh, you know, it's like um, 
Jen thinks she's getting an, an award for herself, but like all of a sudden, like they bring up all these, like the handful of female lawyers they have, and it almost turns into like a beauty pageant in a really disgusting way. And then like they're like, what's the hardest thing about being uh, a woman lawyer? And they start going down the line. And then all of a sudden, uh, the intelligentsia, that's what they're calling it, right? Yep. You know, which is like, uh, which is kind of 4chan. I mean, that's what it is. It's just a, it's a, it's a version of 4chan. And it's just a bunch of like toxic males, like bitching and moaning on the internet about like powerful women. And like she, like Jen Walters has just had an incredible ep- a story in this episode. To me, everything has gone right for her and we've all enjoyed it. Um, and then the, the only way that the intelligentsia can take her down is by throwing up some, reve- uh, some revenge porn. Yeah. Of a, of a, you know, like of her being, you know, like it's like, how do we take down a powerful woman? Oh, well, let's instantly, you know, invade her privacy and show her, you know, quote unquote, being a slut, as they say in the show. And, you know, and then all of a sudden, like she loses it and she like starts to like Hulk rage. And it's like it was it was kind of scary. And in a, you know, to see her like that. And I don't know, I think like you finally get what this show i i finally got what this show is about more so in this episode yeah i think they alluded to it a little bit in the pilot when when hulk is trying to help her understand how to control like the hulk rage aspect <clears throat> where she's like listen I, I live with these rage all the time right all right, right, right society like yeah so i i think what's interesting is that reveal that you saw here um I believe the first episode was supposed to be the eighth episode. So it would be coming right after this is where it was Mm. originally slotted. So the next episode would have been her like trying to control her powers and, and all of that. So I think they made the decision to do this sort of preamble and the setup for how she got her powers at the pilot episode. Um, But I think in the reality of the original ordering, it would be the episode that came after this one. Gotcha. Um, So I just think it, it, yeah, I'm with you. I think that the episode was good. I think, it, sh- it really is shining a spotlight on the way this show is trying to frame uh, her experience is, is that she lives in a world full of toxic masculinity and any strong female is going to be taken down, which is pretty yeah. much what we see uh, yeah. every day. So, um, all right, let's jump over to Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. Uh, I will take this one uh, because I don't think we have a ton of time to jump into it because it's super dense. Uh, the eyes oh, yeah. post- the rising of Mount Doom. Um, and uh, I will say I, I last week I, I called Sar- I called Sauron Saruman a couple of times. Uh, I don't know what was going on, but uh, this episode is really about the survival and the post uh, Mount Doom rise. Yeah. And then trying to figure out what was going on with that group of people. So the, the, uh, the folks from Numenor and the humans that are there and the people who were uh, basically fighting the orcs in in uh the final reveal of of switching over from the southland to mordor was a little on the nose for people who know that mount doom is in mordor but it was Mm -hmm. like it's a really great signpost i think for anybody who's not familiar with that aspect and you've heard mordor is a term before i think it's a it's also a nice confirmation for all of us who know a little bit about this that like yeah it makes sense uh we we now have set the map right for sort of the beginning of the Hobbit, you know, it's, yeah, it's what yeah. it looks like. Um, there's also a whole bunch of back and forth with uh, uh, 
Durin and uh, and the rest of the dwarves and Elrond. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is a really sad aspect. I think the the saddest part there is that Durin, Durin and and uh, Elrond are basically a, the equivalent of brothers, and they call it they they call it out to one another yeah. um, in different ways. And uh, there's no love loss between the dwarves and the elves. There's almost like a historical hatred. And his father, Durin's father, Durin, uh, one of the show, one of the podcasts I listened to called it Big Big D and Little D. Uh, mm-hmm. Big Durin, the father, who's the current king, uh, basically shot down Durin's request to support the elves in mining Mithril. Uh, and uh, it, it turns out that Mithril will actually cure the decay that's happening and the corruption uh, that that is in an, it's in a leaf that uh, Elrond brings to show the corruption. Uh, mm-hmm. And they slide a piece of mithril next to it, and all of a sudden, it slowly dissipates. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really important, right? Like, I also think uh, Elrond is left with uh, a single piece of mithril when he's kicked out of uh, the dwarven uh, haven, and uh, maybe that's just enough for one to three rings, would be my guess. Uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Uh, that's it. But I think overall, the show is fantastic. I think it, we, the sixth episode was probably my favorite up to this point. The seventh is basically just six part two in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, so we're moving that exact same story forward. And the Harfoots, uh, like meeting up with the sirens or the 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 evil sorceresses uh, who are chasing the stranger. Yeah, they're like the, uh, all that is re- like, what's that? They're like the reverse version of those guys from the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. They're, re- they're like the reverse ring wraiths. Right. That so they feel like uh an aspect of the mythology I'm not super familiar with. I think they I, were made for this TV show. I think so. Yeah. Um so I'm interested to see what happens, but uh the Harfoots end up stumbling and making a mistake in interacting with them where they're trying to protect their friend, the stranger, yeah. and that blows back in their face. So I still um, love the stranger, man. I think that storyline and that character and that actor I don't know I don't know where it's going, to be honest. Yeah. Um and I, nor do I, nor do I, I'm, 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 I'm no longer trying to figure it out. I'm just like, dude, I, I love this guy. I, I yeah. yeah, I'm super excited. I am. I am also at the point where I'm like, uh, speculation be damned. I, I, I don't, I'm, I just want to see this story unfold now. Yeah. Um, I'm far enough into most of it to just be like, all right, let's just let it unfold. I'm not going to try to chase this dragon anymore. Yeah. Uh, so that's it for me on the eye. How about you jump in for Andor? What do you think of this week's episode? So Andor, I think we're now we're like moving away from like I think I think I might have said this last time, but we're starting to move away from like the oh my gosh, this isn't a Star Wars uh, show, and all of a sudden they're slowly introducing more elements of 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 Star of Star Wars. Like we're getting, you know, we're getting more Imperial. Um, um, uh, there's a more Imperial presence. Uh, the Empire is now taking over. Um, the outpost where uh, Andor was, um, you know, and uh, we're getting Tie Fighters and all this other stuff, and and this is now uh, we're realizing this is that seems like this. I don't know if this whole season is going to be like a heist season now, but they're they're now kind of plotting to, you know, um, break into a compound, and we're we're getting introduced to like a lot of interesting characters, and and the cool thing is like they're just all. You know, they're all carbon based humans. Um, so it's not like we're getting like weird fantastical aliens or 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 droids or anything like that. And I love all that stuff, but um it's just kind of cool to kind of see very human stories played by humans uh in, in Star Wars. 
because not not what we always get. Um, so I think you know for the most part this episode was uh, I was kind of like okay cool this is this is cool like I'm I'm still on board yeah. um, and I was happy to be introduced and get to know some of um, the ragtag bunch of people that are going to steal the plans or whatever uh, with Andor. Um, but we were talking briefly before, uh, we hit record and I think I agree with what you were saying. Yeah. I think this is the sort of, uh, feels like it's treading water to finish the story is, is so I feel like Tony Gilroy's writing style and Tony and Dan and George Lucas are, who are all credited with writing this is the sort of one and a half ish hour storylines. So the episodes are starting to feel a little chopped for me of like, I just would like to get to the next episode. So I'm going to continue to watch next week's, uh, which will be episode six. <clears throat> but I do think I may hold off on the next round to watch three together um, and treat it as though it's a movie because I'm just finding myself having a hard time coming. I'm watching so much right now in general that watching these one-off episodes that move forward a small portion of the story um, doesn't feel like it's sticking with me as much. I'm also having a harder time like remembering individual beats and plot moments because they're separated by a week. Um, mm -hmm. Not that it's bad. I think it's actually fantastically written and really amazingly directed and shot. I just find that um, the story feels less contiguous to me when it's chopped up like this. Well, yeah, um, I think that She-Hulk and Andor... I think suffer from the same thing where I'm just like, yes, and, mm -hmm. but where, where with She-Hulk, it's like, it's almost like you're on a roller coaster and you're like, oh, I wish this roller coaster was twice as long. Yeah. But with Andor, it's like, you're on like the lazy river and you're like, oh, this is nice and methodical. Cool, cool, cool. Oh, I, I could have, I could have hung out on this lazy river yeah, a little longer. I wish I kind of had 40 more minutes to hang out in this lazy river, right? Like yeah. that's how I feel at the end of every episode. I'm like, this is exciting. There's a lot of cool stuff going on and we're out. And I'm like, good Lord, just like we're, we're so close. I, you know, the first episode of this, this three, this three cycle, I was like, this feels like I want another episode. And then I got to the second episode and I'm like, I really just think we're, we're so close. I just want to see what happens when they try to do this heist, right? Like, um, yeah. But there is some really, I'm, I'm not saying it should be shorter. I'm not saying it. I, I think honestly, the pacing is fantastic. Um, I think it really just feels like about an hour and 37 minute movie and not three episodes of like 31 to 33 minutes um, with a whole bunch of credits, you know? Yeah, man. But I mean, and, and I think that that isn't, that is a, a slippery slope that I think Disney is now finally getting hit with, with like having this like super successful streaming service yeah. and trying to also be a movie studio. Like, uh, like for me, the example that's popping up in my head is like, it was just announced at D 23 that, um, the Don Cheadle, um, armor, armor wars. wars was going to be a TV show. And then all of a sudden it was taken off of the, the schedule. And then all of a sudden it's announced that it's a movie. And, and I feel like it's, you know, a, it's like, well, to have a bunch of like, you know, ar like armed ar iron, like more than one Iron Man on the screen for an entire TV show is going to cost us forever. And we're going to like, yeah. you know, be outsourcing all that CGI. So let's just make it a movie. But also, like, I think the thing that Disney is having to f deal with is like, let we still need to make good content. And it's like, like with an with an Iron Armor Wars movie, it's like, 
Yeah, it's concise. We don't have to like stretch that super thin. Yeah. Um, Because now I'm like thinking to myself, I was like, dude, I would have. I would have gone to the theater multiple times to see a She-Hulk movie after watching this television show. Cause I'll probably watch it. I'll probably binge this thing straight through again. Yeah. Um, I, I think the problem is like, if we turned Andor into like eight movies, I don't think people Lord. would go to the theater for it. No right? way. No, 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 no. Yeah. But, but I mean like Andor episode one, I mean, if this was a trilogy yeah, and you know, that might that might have yeah whatever i don't know who knows um but i will say i'm really liking the rogues gallery that uh cassian is with i, yes. I think every one of them is unique and i mm-hmm. think their stories are all you have you have pretty good motivation and understanding like that's that's a, a good sign for me is when i feel like i can understand why a person hates this person without right. them giving me a ton of backstory uh i think Evan moss uh Bachrock, who's from uh who was in uh the show about the kitchen, uh, the bear, the bear, uh, as, uh, I, I literally just wanted to just keep calling him cousin. Uh, he, <laughs> he is so good in this and so sparse in his dialogue. He gives you so much with so little, um, you can feel his level of annoyance and frustration with the world he's in right now that he has to sort of accept Cassian that there's no understanding for why Cassian would be a part of this. Right. Who mm-hmm. he doesn't, he doesn't know his motivation, so he doesn't understand why he would give up everything and why he would have something of value on him. Why would you do this? Like, so I love the fact that like we get a little bit further into his psyche. We we saw a gruff and tumble sort of soldier or uh, you know re- re- rebel in lots of ways, but like what we ended up getting in this episode was a little bit more of the why, and it doesn't take a lot. Like he's such a good actor that he's giving you sort of concise backstory in like, you know, what could be, it's also Tony Gilroy writing like that is, you know, like setting the stage for you to understand. Right. Right. Um, For why they are, it it feels like it could be, you know, this could be dialogue that could have been written in heat by Michael Mann or could have been in Mike, you know, there's so much of that, like concise terse, like I know this character really well. And you know, it goes to Michael Clayton or anything that Tony Gilroy worked on also, but Mm. Um, I just love that sort of gruff aspect of what the show is doing um, and the way that it allows those characters to be those characters. I don't think every other show is going to give you sort of not rebel scum, but like complicated rebels with small sure. backstories that give you enough to give you a shit, make you give a shit about them, you know? And also finally, I mean, we, we, we got a little bit of this in the Mandalorian, but thank God they started learning how to like put together tattoo guns and like, yeah start fucking tattooing people because like, i was like you know what they're in the real world people got a lot of tattoos well, Might as well tattoos have can tell a story right like yeah, yeah, totally. it was such an amazing you know shortcut to this person was part of a military thing this person was part right. like there's so much that you get out of that and with you know as a shorthand once you understand it right if this comes up again in the future we will understand what tattoos mean right yeah. like i um, mean but that it, it, it just goes to show how far like star wars has come where like you know or even just like hollywood in general like with like the idea of ta- you know tattoos have been around since the caveman yeah. uh and you know it's kind of cool that like i don't know that they're kind of being used for storytelling devices and uh when they're used smartly it's cool i also just love that they gave cassian a moment to like show that he is a strategist and and give us a little bit more of that where mm-hmm. they're talking and they're they're marching and he's like we should change sides. And he's like, why? And he's like, cause you're left-handed. And he's like, 
And he's like, doesn't he basically the guy deflects away from that. And finally, like the leader is Vel, uh, right. Who's played by Faye, Faye Marsa is like, why, why does that matter? And he's like, well, a gun should be on the outside. It'll make it easier for you to attack. Like it's, it's just strategic. And, uh, he's, and then they go down like what everybody's hand is. And he's like, right-handed, right-handed, left-handed, but shoots right-handed, right? Like, and he immediately had assessed everybody in the, like probably within the first 10 minutes of being there. But like, it's an amazing moment of you getting just the insight into what it takes to be alive in this world and to have the experience that that Cassian has. Like he has an understanding that other people don't. And he's not a superhero. He's just lived a wacky life of like a child who was on this planet and then and he's been on the run for a long time and and knows how to read people and like i just love that that was the shorthand for that which was just like yeah you should be on the other side because you're left-handed and that just led to this beautiful little unfolding of his character like yeah i assessed all of you people like if i if i have to be standing next to you i gotta know how i'm gonna die if you're gonna screw this up right like it's really what it felt like like if i had to watch somebody's hand which hand do i have to watch you know yeah yeah which I thought I thought it was great. I think it was just a really great little clever character moment in this episode. Yeah, so we're I will jump into train wreck. Uh, so apparently I was on a tear of uh, wanting to hate my generation of people. Uh, so I watched train wreck uh, Woodstock 99 on Netflix and we'll get to it when we get to the films. But I also what started me on this process is there's a, a, a documentary on HBO Max called Woodstock 99 Peace, Love and Rage. Mm. Um, and it was, it was actually, uh, produced by ringer ringer studios, which is the podcasting network. Uh, and I listened to that director talk to Sean Fennessy on the big picture. It was an older episode and it reminded me like I had never seen any of those documentaries. So I went and watched that and was completely disgusted, uh, by that movie, uh, TLDR, uh, and went and was like, I need to like, make sure that I'm feeling what I'm feeling and confirm it. So I went back and watched Trainwreck Woodstock 99, which is three episode documentary on Netflix. And uh, the big takeaway is uh, culture in 99 was very driven by misogyny and uh, a lot of people who were just taking what they wanted and they didn't care about anything else, Uh, no matter what it was, corporate wise, uh, on the ground. uh, There was also a lot of disillusionment and lack of understanding. a lack of understanding of the artists and the impact they were having on it. Um, but I also don't think you can expect, and the problem I had was the showrunners, uh, sorry, the, the people who ran Woodstock 99 alluded to the fact that they felt like the artists threw kerosene on the fire. Um, and I don't know that you can expect the artists to play their part of not, uh, of being like the cultural touch point for how this should have gone. So the one thing I, I take away from both uh, the Trainwreck 99 uh, uh, documentary on Netflix and Woodstock 99, uh, Peace, Love, and Rage, is that the promoters uh, spent a lot of time criticizing the artists, saying that they caused a lot of these problems when the reality was they didn't have good security, they didn't have a plan for how to deal with problems, mm-hmm. um, and and they wanted to scapegoat the artists. And I, I don't want to give you know, Fred Durst or, uh, you know, Anthony Kiedis or Kid Rock, you know, carte blanche to do whatever they want. But I also don't expect them to be the high point of like keeping your crowd civilized. Like it just doesn't seem like a reasonable ask. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially like, you know, the, the, their current, their lineup that was like super uh, at the end of every night was like uh, Limp Bizkit and Korn, uh, Rage Against the Machine, Metallica, 
and Red Hot Chili Peppers were like five of the last bands across three nights. Mm-hmm. Like that, you're really just ramping up the testosterone and, and it's all, you know, uh, rage filled, hormone filled teens that have been drinking and, and not getting enough sleep and out in the sun all day. Uh, so just, yeah, I, I just didn't love the experience of watching them, but I also felt like I could have been there and I'm really glad I didn't go. Um, cause it my, was 99. So I would have been 25, 24 when that, my, happened. my sister and her boyfriend at the time went hmm. and was, uh, they don't have anything great. I mean, you know, they were like, they were living in mud and, yeah. but they didn't, I mean, they hadn't really talked too much about like the filth or anything like that, but, um, watching it on, te- I remember watching it. Was it on, was it pay-per-view or was it just it was live pay-per-view. on MTV? It was pay-per-view and they were doing live remotes on MTV. Okay. So I, I remember watching a lot of the live remote stuff on MTV then. And I was just like, that's gross. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was, uh, and they talked a lot about like what happened. And part of it was that they didn't let anybody bring in water and things like that. They took mm-hmm. away all that, the stuff that was in people's bags, it's but insane. then they didn't have a clear path to, uh, people getting water, uh, that was safe. So, mm-hmm. uh, water was regulated to be $4 a bottle, but it was oh $4 goodness. a bottle for water in 1999. Yeah. And then, uh, a bunch of people, it's like $20 now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, A bunch of people got sick from the water, like trench mouth and things like that, because there was so much bacteria because the table, the, the water table was impacted by the, the porta potties and stuff like that. So just a a terrible situation across the board. Like one, one of the documentaries actually had one of the inspectors where they like took a bunch of water samples and left it overnight to come back and check on it. And he Mm -hmm. opened the door and he said like, it, it smelled terrible in the lab and they looked and like, every single one of the samples was was contaminated all of them had bacteria in them from every water supply whether it was the showers or the water that they were supposed to be drinking or the, like everything everything was contaminated by by day 2 Woof. yeah Gross. so not not a great experience uh i if you care to watch them i would say watch the documentary on hbo max it's a little more concise and i feel like it's got a point of view that feels a little more realistic and doesn't mm-hmm. let the it doesn't let the uh, it, it doesn't the the documentary on Netflix feels a little bit like it's uh, for show and a little more like uh, story driven. Whereas I feel like the Woodstock '99 Peace Love and Rage feels like it's a little more straightforward documentary of like this is the crazy shit that happened and right. we can't imagine. The reason we did this is because we can't even imagine this happened in a modern society, like in you know in 1999, you know 23 years ago, you know. Uh, just crazy or 33 years ago at this point. So there was some talk about doing a Woodstock 50 in 20, 2019. Yeah. I remember uh, hearing that Michael, who is one of the main organizers uh, passed away last year in 2021. Uh, But they had canceled it beforehand. They said there was logistics problems, but I can't imagine after, especially after all these documentaries being coming out that they would have, they, they couldn't run away from the previous stink of what Woodstock 99 was. I mean, um, the, 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 the images and the footage of like, just like people covered in mud and like, like throwing mud at the, yeah. at the performers. And then like the, what, what's his name? Billy Joel, Billy Joe from, well, uh, that was 1994. That was the, oh, that was the 94 yeah. one. Oh, yeah, 99 was full of mud anyway, uh, but yeah. that was mostly because they broke the pipes 
that were leading to the water that was supposed to be used for drinking okay. because people were waiting in line for three hours to get wa- free water and they finally wow. got annoyed. So they started, br- they broke the pipes. So there was water spewing from the pipes so they could drink that water. But that water then contaminated the ground, which then contaminated the area near the porta potties. So like it was, it was dumb humans doing dumb things on every level from the organizers all the way down to the attendees. But uh, they, yeah, it, it was just such a bad situation. So much yeah. so that like it took the um, state police to come in and get the entire place back under control, put out all the fires. Like, yeah, it was, it was pretty terrible. And, yeah. and I think there were 12 documented rapes that were, that came out of it um, across the entire weekend. And there's, you know, uh, there's a, a entire section of a website that is an anonymous about people who want to talk about this. And they have, they have like dozens and dozens of people who were sexually assaulted. Uh, it was just a terrible, terrible experience for everybody involved. And I, I'm glad I didn't go. And I'm glad that so many of my friends never made it there um, is really what it comes down to. Yeah. Cause like, Woodstock was a moment in time and like the fact that like corporations just wanted to recapture it on multiple, like multiple times is, um, I don't know. It misses the mark on why they did it in the first place. Yeah. But, uh, talking about sequels, let's jump into the house of the dragon. Uh, let's talk about episode seven since you, uh, are caught up my friend. What did you think of last week's episode? So last week, uh last week's episode was really cool in in some ways in most ways i mean we get um we get the families coming together but then all but then <laughs> i guess we get the families coming together more ways than one <laughs> um yeah i the thing that i'm curious about this show is i are they intending this just to be one season no they're jumping in time so much every episode yep. that I'm like, guys, you you're really are they just trying to like desperately by the like this will the series finale of House of the Dragon end with um what's her face from uh from Game of Thrones being born? I mean, that would be clever. Is that what they're, is that where they're going for? I know we're, we're really far back, right? Yeah. I mean, that would be a clever component. I think the other one could be the, the killing of the mad King. Right. Um, right. But then you'd really have to think about, you know, uh, the, the Lannisters and their power play at that point. And who, who mm-hmm. would you cast, you know, would you bring back Nickoff to play, you know, the Kingslayer? I, I think it, it's, we're pretty far off from that, but, um, yeah, I don't know where they plan on ending it. Uh, I haven't read uh, the Song of Ice and uh, sorry, the the book that it's based on, Fire and Ice. Yeah, um, I do have it in my Audible listens. I'm, I'm going. To, I planned. I purchased it recently because I do feel like I need more backstory. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say that uh, everything that took place, I think, up to Lena's death, is is kind of preamble to get to the beginning of the Dance of the Dragons. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they, they've spent a lot of time with, from what I understand with these characters that are really like sometimes a paragraph or a line is, right. is really drawn out to 20, 25 minutes in an episode. So, um, I know it feels jumpy and I, you know, I, I'm not part of the team that's building it, but I think they've got so much story they're trying to tell Right. that if they let the, if, if they let you get comfortable with the actual characters, I feel like this would be like a 10 year long show. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, in, I'm definitely enjoying it. I'm just like, I'm amazed at uh, 
like in one episode there's a you know there's a certain like there's these kids playing these characters then all of a sudden you like blink and it's the next episode and they're like grown-ass men that are already married and um so it's 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 going by fast um but episode seven we got a lot of good dragon stuff we got some uh infighting between the uh the illegitimate kids and the uh you know the uh the the non-illegitimate kids um and you get a lot of tension between the the queen and um and what's her face Renera. Uh, yeah, we uh, the, yeah the queen and Renera. There's a lot of tension between them, yep. um, and this is kind of the episode where I feel like um, you know you finally see that like the 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 queen and her father, who is also the hand of the king, are like not such nice people, and they're scheming and conniving to kind of take the throne uh, from un- from under the targaryens yeah i think uh you said it before this before we started recording this has every cliche everything that can happen in game of thrones happened in this episode yeah right you've got dragony stuff you've got court intrigue you've got you know somebody getting some some physical violence uh incest you know like uh trying to marriage uh, a marriage a death right yeah. like you, you get it all you know um and i i think it's probably up up to this week, I think this was probably my favorite episode so far. Uh, mm-hmm. Driftmark. Uh, I think the Driftmark is really sort of the, the 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 big talking point that I think hurt this episode is they did a lot of day for night shooting, so they shot a lot of things during the day and then digitally darkened it at night. And a lot of a lot of HBO Max, com, you know, complaints came in about not being able to see the episode and about all this. Sure. <clears throat> I think the the funny thing that I saw was like somebody complaining like cost a lot of money to render Vagar, so they were just like, "What if we just put him mostly in the dark? Put her in the dark, it'll be I mean, fine." That, that's what they do with like. That's one of the reasons why like, um, you know, one of the reasons why like my one of my favorite movies, Pacific Rim, mm-hmm. uh, most of the fights between the the kaiju and the the giant robots, the Jaegers, happens at night in the yep. rain, is like so you can mask how hard it is to like make these like digital rendering things look good. Um, yep. So yeah, I, I, I get why they did that. Um, yeah. But I, I also, it, I've seen it done better in other, other ways yeah, where you, it, you, you shoot day for night. Um, yeah, I've seen it, it done better. a little bit out of it, to be honest. I like stopped and double checked to make sure my television was on the right settings. Um, and my wife was laughing at me. She was just like, uh, what's the matter? And I'm like, I don't know. It just doesn't look clear. Like, it, yeah. I feel like it could be different. So, uh, and then what really convinced me it was, it wasn't my television was the end when they did the like recap of the episode and it looked that way in the lower fidelity also, like not mm-hmm. in the, not in the 4k stream, but in the right. actual, like, you know, pre-rendered, uh, video that was part of the synopsis i was like oh yeah they did that on purpose like um, well it, it was i mean I, i've seen it done where like you still get the depth of field and it still looks really good but the way they did it and they probably had to do it qu- quite quickly for this episode it almost looked like they just took a piece of like cellophane and just mm-hmm. like put it over like they're like it's almost as if they sent everyone who was watching this a piece of cellophane yep. uh to their house and like hey, tape this up <laughs> over your screen to make it look nighttime. Um, yeah. But I, I will say there's some really great stuff in that episode. I think the uh, Amon, uh, 
claiming uh, Vagar is really impressive. I, I think the back and forth of like uh, Vagar accepting Aemon, uh, yeah, Aemon, uh, but like forcing him to hold on, mm-hmm. like prove you prove you earn this, like in a really steep takeoff and, a, you know, all that kind of stuff is really interesting. We, we didn't get to see Lena claim Vagar, so we got a chance to see this. We did get it to see a child claim a dragon. Right. That isn't one that they're, you know, that hatches for them and that they're bound to. Yeah. So I think that was important. I think the the eye for an eye aspect of this episode was really, uh, it, people have been talking about it for a long time that like, uh, I, I forget what podcast it was, but it might've been uh, house of R and they're like, you know, some shit's going to bust off when kids start losing eyes. Like, um, and that, that is really a big part of the story and, and about how they get to where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, this is actually a more, from what I understand is a little clearer and more concise than what was in the book. Like the, the daughters weren't there as part of that uh, interaction between the boys in the, in the book version. Mm-hmm. So, which makes sense, right? Like having them see that Eamon, uh, Eamon has taken uh, Vagar and claimed her, claimed her as his dragon. Uh, and then that kicking all of that off is really a really great way to ground these kids. And yeah. then to get Luke and Jace, uh, you know, engaged to them, betrothed to them in the next episode, They've always had a little bit of a soft spot for those those girls and those boys have always had something like even when Lena died, right? Having uh, Jace go over to comfort his cousin and right. her hold his hand, right? Like there's always been a little something special between those. Yeah, kids. yeah, that was the, the, um, those are nice moments. And I think, you know, it really is fun. Like there's it's just a sort of chaos of a good Game of Thrones episode. Um, is what it felt like. Like, yeah. you know, you, you get a little precursor to where the who's on team red and who's on team black and who's on team green just mm-hmm. by the way they're split in the room, you know? Um, and then I think we can jump straight to uh, Lord of the Tides this week's episode uh, where it's now uh, Cor- Coralus uh, uh, Valerian has, has gone off and he's in the middle of a, another battle in the Sepstones and he's injured. Yeah. So uh, this so- all, t- and this all took place off screen. Right. This is like so, six years later. Right. Uh, Coralus is off. Maybe it is uh, dealing with the deaths of his children differently than his wife. Right. Mm-hmm. Like uh, we saw that uh, uh, Lenore wanted to go back to uh, battle mm-hmm. to get away from everything in court. Maybe his father has a similar feeling. Yeah. Uh, it's easier to be in battle where you know where the where the sword is coming from, basically. Right. And, uh, so he gets injured, but we get word that he's been injured and that he's suffering a fever. Uh, so there's a question about like secession now for uh, for the for the um, the throne in Driftmark, right? Uh, so that then leads to everybody having getting summoned to King's Landing basically to present to the king, and in this case the hand of the king and the queen because the king is falling apart. Uh, and Literally, really, yeah, is is really coming down to the end of his life. Yeah. Um, so the you know, we, we open with, uh, you know, there's a lot of back and forth, the arrival of Damon and, uh, princess Raina, uh, they now have three, two children, two children and she's pregnant. Yep. Um, which one is named Viserys after, after her father, mm-hmm. uh, which is really sweet. They go and they meet the King and they, we see him for the first time and he's very decrepit and he's very broken down. And, uh, well, and he also has like half of his faces, is bandaged up and yeah. um 
Yeah, I'm just we'll we'll get back to that later, I guess. Yeah, but I think it's it's hard to watch uh, Damon and his brother. Like, there's a lot of question in some of the podcasts I've listened to about like what his reaction is, and I think he's just sad to see well, his brother. Well, fuck, dude, that's what I that's what I was like this whole episode. You know, yeah. it's like um, it's so just dis, dis, uh, disheartening to walk it, you know, and to know that they're only like six years apart or something like that yeah. in age. Yeah, and you see like a vibrant Matt Smith playing, you know, Damon. And Patty, who's playing Viserys as this like crumbling ma- old man at this point, yeah, um, who's literally losing body parts, um, and and you get a chance to see Reyna like sort of interact with her father and introduce the children, and so it, you know he he gets the moment of like I would like to introduce you to Viserys, and he's like a name fit for a king, like and he, right. he spruces up a little bit, right? Like you can see this. If he was walking, there'd be some pep in his step. Like it's definitely a moment. He's proud of his daughter and he's proud that yeah. she's named a son after him, you know, but there's also, uh, but then he, and he, he asks for his tea and, you know, I think there's speculation now uh, when, when, um, when Damon hands, I think Damon hands him the tea or he someone knows. hands him the tea. And, uh, you know, they're like, is, is he, is he being, they're wondering if he's being poisoned slowly. Yeah, or not so know, slowly. I don't think it's poisoned. I think it's just milk of the poppy, which which basically curbs pain in that space. That's something that right. the Meisters brew. Or it's but also a, like may, puts him in a weird state of like. It does. It messes with people. And, you know, we, we saw that at the beginning of the first episode when um, uh, Emma is giving birth. They, he mm-hmm. asks if he can give her more milk of the poppy. And they said not without damaging her brain. Like yeah. basically, uh, she's had as much as she can possibly handle. So we we assume that King Viserys is basically swimming in a pool of uh, milk of the poppy at this yeah. point. Like his Which brain is just like there's no blood left. It's just milk of the hot poppy that his brain is sitting in right now because he's in so much pain. Um, if you're listening to this, I hope you took a drink every time Robbie said milk of the poppy because you're probably <laughs> shit faced drunk right now. <laughs> Um, uh, we but, should get to the, to the main, main run of the show of this episode. So yeah. do you want to walk us through? Yeah. So, I mean, th- that's the thing about this episode. I think, you know, f- this episode was a really, for me, it showcased a king who was a king who tried to do everything good, right. And, uh, and everything right by his family. And his family is just like, they 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 all hate each other and they're they're all separated so he's like desperately trying to like in his final act on on this you know this astral plane trying to like bring them together and like make them love each other and and if anything for him and i mean so when you first meet him in this episode he has a bandage over half of his face and then when you meet him next when he's kind of in his like uh royal attire to go to dinner he's got this like gold mask on and then he takes it off mm-hmm. and he doesn't have any, his eye socket. It's completely just open yeah, with no eye. It's like, it's just a, a hollow gaping wound and half of his cheek is deteriorated. Yeah. And, um, a, it's really well done and just incredibly disturbing. And it's just like, and he's just exposing himself in in the most like this is me this is who i am at this moment and i'm just begging all of you to just get along and love each other and it's just really sad because like he just like he he tries to almost almost his very last breath he has to leave and then they just start fighting again yeah you know and 
it's uh it just like was really sad it was such a sad moment um i was a i was i gotta say like um i wasn't like a big fan of like the king so like in in house of dragons um i thought the the actor patty uh cons uh patty constantine yeah was was fine he's fine um but i didn't think that i didn't really enjoy the character but then god man it made me sad that i didn't enjoy the character in this episode he redeemed i mean to me i was like wow you just the the character storytelling wise there was a lot of redemption for me in this episode because i was just like so sad and then i mean we can talk about the infighting uh before we talk about the very end of the the show if you want yeah i think so what ends up happening is rhaenyra goes to her father uh, late at night and asks him very pointedly if he believes that the, um, that the dream, the, 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 the dream about the future, uh, the song of ice and fire is, is true. Um, and also like you created a situation where we, we bifurcated uh, support in the seven kingdoms um, and you haven't fixed this. Like if, if you think I am the queen, uh, if I'm the queen to be uh, to solve this problem, I need your help. Um, this is like, it's her like last gasp of a man, knowing her father is about, uh, about to die. So she pleads with him in, in the evening and he wakes up the next morning and says like, he doesn't want the milk of the poppy. He wants to have dinner with his family. And what you see is them basically getting him ready to leave his room. Um, so there's like four Meisters, uh, in the room They're they're cleaning his wounds, um, and it's, it's, it's brutal. It's, it's, it's really troubling, but we then cut to the throne room and you've got the hand of the King Otto, uh, sitting on the throne saying that he speaks with the will of the King, um, and that, uh, he will hear the, the secession, uh, claims. So, uh, we have the brother of Corliss Valerian, uh, who claims that he should be, uh, granted the king uh, to be the king in Driftmark because he is a trueborn Valerian and he's alluding to uh, he starts off alluding to the fact that like Rhaenyra's children are not trueborn Valerians uh, and and she, Rhaenyra defends her children and uh, there's this immediate back and forth uh, about it and finally R- Rhaenyra starts to plead her case and the door opens and there's a big pomp and circumstance and it's King Viserys coming to sit upon his throne. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's uh, powerful and uh, a little comical uh, initially. And then it's extremely moving and motivating uh, to me as a watcher and a lover of this world. Uh, you get this moment where you realize uh, that King Viserys is here because he loves his daughter and he's doing everything in his power to protect her and do what she asked. And you realize that he's walking up the aisle, this comically long uh, throne room aisle and Renera is in between him and the, and the actual throne. So he's not walking to the throne at first. He's walking to his daughter. And Mm -hmm. then when he passes her, it slows down and he's, he's really losing steam. And as he's about to mount the iron throne, he, he stumbles and his crown falls off. And then Damon, uh, someone helps him pick up the crown and it turns out it's Damon and he helps him to the throne and then he puts the crown upon his head. So we're to remember all the things with the driftwood crown and 
all the moments they've had in that room, right? Between the mm-hmm. brothers. Um, right. And I just feel like it is one of the most uh, like well-written like three minutes in the Game of Thrones ecosystem. Like everything we've d- we've gone through with all of these characters pays off in that one moment, uh, mm-hmm. in that one scene. And then it cuts to uh, him, you know, Viserys questioning, why are we, why are we going back and relitigating, uh, you know, claims when, when we already know this has been, this has been previously litigated and solved. Right. Uh, and then gives Princess Renice an opportunity to say, you were closest to your husband. If anybody knew that something had changed, it would be you. And then she backs the play of Renera. And at that point, Renera talks about the fact that like, she's now betrothed her children to the granddaughters of Princess Renice. Um, so they will tie the Valerians to the Targaryens and strengthen the lines. And at that point, um, at that point, all hell breaks loose. Um, <laughs> uh, what's his name? Uh, the uh, Vaymond Valerian, who is Coralus's brother, who has been making the claim, like really loses his shit and basically yells at the king. Like this might be how you run your family, but this isn't, I'm not going to let you run my family. Right. Yeah. Right on the cusp of calling the children bastards. And there's a great moment where Damon is just like leans in very silently and says like, say it like there's been friction between them all the way since the, since the, the steps back, you know, at this point, 15 years ago, they, they've never seen eye to eye. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it's a really great moment where, uh, he then finally calls, uh, Luke and Jace bastards. Uh, and then he, he turns to the King and he says that, uh, she is a whore. And at that moment, Damon cuts his head in half. Like, and I was, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's brutal and painful and perfect. Like, um, because at that point, Viserys jumps up and says like, he'll, he, he reaches for his dagger, the cat's eye dagger. And he, he's so angry that he is spurned to action, even though he's falling apart yeah. to take this man's tongue. Right. Cause that's what he always said is if you questioned, uh, the line of secession, he would take mm-hmm. your tongue. Yeah. Um, uh, and he says that, and then Damon's line, he has a great quippy line. He's like, he can keep his tongue, uh, which is perfect. It's, it, it's it's exactly what you want out of Damon. He the rogue prince has returned to uh, the chaos that he always ensues in that room, and um, it, it's it's beautifully shot, beautifully done. And I, I don't know that there's a better five minutes of Game of Thrones, even in the original series. Wow! Um, I just think it's it's so emotionally resonant. I think we've we've laid great ground uh, for why these characters act the way they act. Yeah. And uh, it's just kind of a perfect payoff, right? Like, I think Patty has spent so much time uh, trying desperately to bring his family together. And he even whispers to Renera that uh, his only his only child, right? Mm. He's like kind of dismissing Aegon and, and Aemon, uh, right? Because she's the only child from the first wife, from Emma. Right. So yeah, there's, there's a lot in this one episode, but I think that like seven minutes stretch from like the door opens and him being announced to sort of cutting the head of Vaymond in half is unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and then they go to a dinner, right? Yeah. And that's kind of what, yeah. He needs to have a dinner after you, you kill a guy and there's no consequences for Damon. He's sitting right there too yeah. away from the king. Yeah. And the, you know, like I think for me, like the, yeah, there's a lot of, and there's a lot of infighting with the kids and stuff like during, after, 
after the king leaves. Also, um, who is the chef who trolls everybody by sending a pig out to the kids when the pink dread was a long known and well-known problem between the children? Like, come on, chef. Well, you, you know, the kids, you know, the kids were in on that, obviously. Very um, likely. Yeah. But the final scene of this whole, this whole episode was, was like, you, the king had like put me in a super sad state. And then you get one of the saddest parting this, this mortal coil scenes I think I've ever witnessed yep. in television. Um, it was so well done. Um, and I think it, I think it was really interesting too because you know he's back on the pop he's back on the milk of the poppy take another drink yep um and correct me if I'm wrong right he he thinks he's talking to his daughter he does so yeah he brings up the uh, the prophecy and in the process of bringing it up says uh, yes the only thing that will unite the nations. Uh, Aegon's uh, Aegon's uh, dream is is true. Um, you, you are the only person that can make this happen, and it's sort of a, a hodgepodge of words that give Alicent, I feel like, in the future, enough to stand by what we just heard King Viserys say about Princess uh, Renice, which is, "You are the last person to talk to your husband." And you are the only one that can validate if something has changed. So everything that happened in that throne room, right, where the only person who has a claim to a change in the decision of the king is the wife of the king, the queen, will now empower Alicent to move forward and put Aegon on the throne. It's very sad. And also you get to hear as finally the, the screen goes to black, you hear uh, the last words that uh, Viserys says, which is my love. And the assumption being he's seeing Emma right waiting for him. It's it's really well done. I think this is probably it, it's going to go down as one of the best episodes of Game of Thrones if we're going to throw them both under the same umbrella. But I think there are so many unbelievable moments. Um, okay, House of the Dragon done. I'm going to jump over to uh, a double feature of, uh, remember I warned, I watched a bunch of movies. I finally finished For the Love of the Game. Uh, it's a Sam Raimi directed film with Kevin Costner and Kelly Preston uh, and John C. Riley, uh, J.K. Simmons. Uh, so a whole bunch of people who felt like they belonged in this movie. I felt a little bit like Kelly Preston was miscast uh, in this movie. She didn't feel like she fit in. Uh, I, there's a lot of like, uh, I listen to the rewatchables and there's often like casting what ifs. And I feel like there's a whole bunch of people that could have filled that role, but I think Kelly Preston, uh, eventually gets there. In my opinion, the first like two thirds of the film, Kelly Preston feels com completely disconnected. Like Kevin Costner feels like Gary Cooper and she doesn't feel like she belongs in the same film as like a modern Gary Cooper. He's so like, um, uptight and, 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 uh, like cares so much about baseball and not about the rest of the world. And she is like trying to defend herself from falling in love with him. But also 
I, I don't buy her as much as an emotional. I don't buy her. I don't believe her emotional connection to him as much. Whereas I think other actresses could have, would have been a little bit more suited for that role. I think a young Meg Ryan would have been great. Like, I think there's a whole bunch of people that, that could have filled that role. But I think the last like 20 minutes of Kelly Preston is really great in the film. Uh, so I think she got there. Uh, I think the movie, I, I said this to John before this started. I don't know that I've ever watched a movie that made me cry harder and be more bored at the same time. Um, there's some unbelievable sequences in this film of like him reliving his entire life while playing his last game of baseball. So you get this moment where like he remembers his parents being at the world series while he's, while he's pitching, walking off of the field. And it's just emotionally devastating, like relitigating his life. It's almost like this is your life, except he's rerunning through his entire lifetime uh, and what brought him to today um, in his last game. Um, it's, it's interesting. I, I think Sam Raimi is kind of, I, I don't know. You see a lot of Sam Raimi in this film. Uh, he's sort of a interesting director and this feels like he was trying to paint by numbers and be a studio director, uh, and not be Sam Raimi. Uh, like he's, he's tamping down every instinct to be Sam Raimi. I'm going to jump over to, I watched the untouchables this week on steel, uh, on 4k at home. Uh, there's a really beautiful steel book that came out. I watched it. Uh, it's it's Brian De Palma being Brian De Palma. I think he does a really great job of in this film uh, pulling great uh, great acting out of great actors. Uh, Sean Connery's fantastic in it. Uh, I think when it comes right down to it, there's no one in the cast that's not good. I think he also sort of lets people do what he thinks they should do. Uh, I heard that De Niro said that he wanted to gain 30 pounds to play Capone because he wanted his face to look right. And that he felt like there needed to be one more scene. So he he helped him rewrite the script to add that scene. Uh, it feels like De Palma really understood that, like, I, I got good talent here. I should kind of listen to what's going on and and let them. He, he, he navigated them to a really effective film. But it also feels pretty cookie cutter 50s. Uh, reminds me a lot more of 50s and 60s cinema than it does of 70s and 80s cinema. Um, so it's, it, it really is like a throwback film in a lot of ways. It's a really great Andy Garcia, young performance. He's so good in it as George Stone. He's great. And, and the chemistry between him and Con Connery has chemistry with everybody in this film. Like this was like in my, there's a lot of great Sean Connery films out there. This is a film where he has chemistry with everyone from the shotgun he's carrying to the Blackjack, he's he, like, he, he has chemistry with everybody and uh, he just oozes charisma in this movie. Uh, and it really picks up when that film, when he gets started, it's unreal. Like uh, every scene that he's a part of uh, is, it feels like the film is electric and then it sort of cools off the scenes he's not in. So when we, when we lose him in the film, it feels like the emotional weight has now shifted to Kevin Costner. And for the first time in the film, he as a character is allowed to sort of feel feelings. He's already sort of brimming to explode with them alluding to the fact that they're going to mess with his right. wife and his daughter. And it's, it's only after the loss of Sean Connery's character that he like becomes the Phoenix of emotion that he is in, in some mm -hmm. films. And he really just explodes. Like he's so reserved in, in the moments in, in the film before that, you know, where Sean Connery's asking all these questions, like, what are you willing to do? Right. Like, you know, the, the whole speech about like, you know, the Chicago way, right. Like if, if he puts one, you know, if he pulls a knife, you pull a gun. If he puts one of yours in the hospital, you put one in the morgue. 
I think Sean Connery is basically it's it's almost like they they navigated the emotional arc of Kevin Costner's character to be like one to two scenes behind Sean Connery. And every time something changes, he like Sean Connery escalates a little bit and then Costner matches him a little bit. And then once he's gone, there's no governor on, on Kevin Costner. And he just like, he like really goes and, and the emotion really takes over. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's been a while since I've seen the movie, but um, this is like one of those movies where it came out and I think like my parents and my uncle and aunt, uh, really loved it and then they couldn't stop talking about it and then yeah because it's very much a movie also of the time i think i mean it's written by david mamet so there's there's that yes um and yeah it's like very much like you know it is it's got the patter that mamet yeah but it's also it it feels it's like historically you know it's based off of like events that happened in real life but it's very much like it's still to me it's very much like an 80s action movie uh, it's like an yeah. 80s and it's action. also a dramatization yeah. like it's loosely totally. based on but it's like an 80s you know? action drama um yeah but i i i mean there's that quintessential scene where like the you know the the baby carriage is going down the the stairs and everything and yep. there's a gunfight happening and all this other things but um who knows about so apparently that that was like a, a moment that Brian De Palma figured out because uh, the it was supposed to be a train that was decked out for the time period and it would have cost two hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars and it was that was the way Mamet had written it and Mamet was off doing something else so they couldn't do rewrites and apparently De Palma said uh, get me a staircase a carriage and a clock and I'll take care wow. of this and it's it's basically redoing Battleship Potemkin's big scene of action from the Russian film in the thirties. It's a huge homage to that scene, but I also think it's extremely effective. Like it, it it ramps up tension in really interesting ways. I think there's a, there's a, uh, I wouldn't even call it believability. You're so bought in to the action that's happening that you forget how over the top this all feels. Um, And then you get that great moment at the end where he asks him, he asks, uh, whether or not he's got him, mm-hmm. right? Andy Garcia is laying on the ground with the carriage on his knees, right? He's holding it above the ground and he's got his gun planted firmly uh, in his right hand and he's sighting the guy who's holding the accountant. And it's this great back and forth of like, uh, this isn't how this is going to go. You're going to have nothing. I'm taking the accountant and we're leaving. And he's like, if you try to come at me, I'm killing the accountant. You got nothing, right? Like, And it's a really straight stakes. We know the stakes, and what's awesome is seeing Elliot Ness finally uh, let go and let his guys take the yeah. moment. And he asks George very pointedly, he's like, have you got him? And he's like, yeah. And Elliot Ness drops his gun and he's like, take him. Like, and it's this unbelievable shot, right? Like, but it's shot. So, so the gunshot is amazing, like in the story, the way it's told, but it's extremely believable. Cause you saw like Andy Garcia is this young upcoming cadet who like you meet him in a firing range, basically blowing, you know, holes through the center of a target, mm-hmm. you know, and he's hitting every one of the stars, you know, like, so it, it's believable. I think that's the thing that's really good about that is like, it's not the other guys, right? It's this young whippersnapper cop kid who is a prodigy, right? That you've launched. So I think the Palmer really understands like storytelling, right? right? Like 
Elliot Ness has to give up control in that moment, right? Like he lost control. He lost the carriage. I think there's so much great in that last sequence because it really, it shows how much De Palma really just understands storytelling and, and really like generic storytelling. Like that could have been set in any time period, right? Like it doesn't have to be this movie. It's just good storytelling, you know? Yeah, it was super fun. I'm glad I own it now. It's one of those films I don't know that I'll watch a ton, but uh, it was really good. Um, let's see. Let's jump over to something that we both watched. How about uh, Army of the Dead? I finally watched it. Uh, what is your take on Army of the Dead, my friend? Well, Army of the Dead uh, came out on Netflix. I think I don't remember when it when it actually. I think it was 2021. I think it was early in 2020. Right, and this is this was like the thing that came out after this the Schneider cut was released. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, or maybe even during the Schneider cut being released. So this is um, this is Zack Snyder's uh, returning to what made him famous. Really, is the the zombie genre. But this is kind of his own genre, his own take on on zombies. Um, yep. And um, what happens is uh, there's a zombie outbreak that takes place in Vegas. Um, and then they just literally just like wall in Vegas and it kind of becomes this like no man's land of zombies. Uh, but what happens is that one of the casinos has a a big old vault full of money and, uh, someone hires a ragtag bunch of, uh, desperados and bad people and everything to, to go in there against the zombies to get it out. Uh, that's kind of the basis of it. Um, I think, I mean, look, I, I'm a fan of, of Zack Snyder stuff. Like I, I like the Snyder cut. I like, I like his, his director's cut version of, of Watchmen. Uh, I like his ultimate edition of Batman V Superman. Uh, so he, you know, and I, I love his zombie stuff. Like his early zombie stuff is really great too. I mean, you know, this is, this was a Netflix movie. You know, it's like yeah. it's like I'm glad that he got to kind of flex his his non superhero muscles again. Um, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have paid. You know, I wouldn't have really gone. I would have I wouldn't have made my way to the movie theater to see this movie. Um, mm-hmm. But the fact that I could like sit on my couch and like you know hit play on Netflix uh, sufficed enough to my knowledge. Yeah. Um, you know, this has. Um, Dave Batista in it, and I'm a, you know I'm a big fan of of Dave Batista's, yeah, uh, him being half Filipino like me, and also his you know being Drax, but most importantly you know he was one of my favorite wrestlers in the WWE. So, um, and you know I I, I do appreciate that I do appreciate that he tried to do something different with the zombie genre, where it was like maybe they're from another planet maybe it's like an alien thing there's like there's like sentient zombies there's like maybe pregnant zombies you know like there was a lot of stuff he he was throwing a lot of stuff on the wall i think yeah i i will say my my biggest problem i think with this is Zack snyder should probably not be the the story creator of stuff when he is creating other people's visions and taking other people's visions. He has a really keen eye. Um, but I also think this movie suffered a little bit from him also being the cinematographer. 
I think he he was too involved in too many layers is what it felt well, like I think to that's me. him. Yeah, um, he's a bit of a control freak, I think, in that regard. Um, I think the story was bland. Sure. That, that, that's the saddest thing to say about a zombie film. Like, I think conceptually saying like Vegas, heist, zombies, money, right? Like, I, I, I'm on board, right? Like, conceptually, this was an easy sell probably at, at, at Netflix at the executive suite. Like, you know, Zack Snyder, the guy who's made a whole bunch of stuff over at Warner Brothers. What if we got him here to do zombie stuff? Uh, was an easy one, sure. you know? I, I think uh, the heist aspect of it was really bland. I think that's a sad part of like the heist piece should have been fun, right? We should have been able to see a little bit more heistiness. Mm. Like the idea that you basically just walk down Main Street and then enter the building and then take an elevator down is not super heisty, right? Like I, I think it would have been much more interesting if it was like there's there's tunnels that lead, right? Like we we there's all this assumption that there's like underground stuff in Vegas. Wouldn't it have been cool to say like, there are tunnels that like VIPs come through and whales and w- wouldn't we leverage some of the aspects of like the, the story nature of what that the gangsters used to use these tunnels. And like, I think there could have been some really fun aspects of a heist there. If it was, if it had been thought out a little bit further, I think that would have given me a little more to latch onto. I think the, the, there's nothing wrong in this cast. I think the cast is really amazing. I think they're, they're all doing what they're being asked well, I to do. I think everybody in it's well, fun. Well, you know? I mean, speaking of the cast, I don't know if you knew this, but um, they did you know they edited someone out completely? Yeah. Okay. Yes. So yeah. They, so t- yeah, Tignataro is replacing Chris. Yeah, just because he, you know, I I believe it was a Me Too situation with him, mm-hmm. and um, I mean, I also love Tignataro. I think her casting in it, like she brings a levity and and heightened sense of. Uh, absurdist comedy to mm-hmm. things and she's just good at what she does she, she's good at stealing scenes and being like five minutes of levity and a like uh in my opinion in, in large segments of it that are kind of bland so every time we cut back to her i'm like oh yeah this is fun i love i love seeing tig uh but honestly like i i don't want to really badmouth this film i just think it, it had so much potential i think the the aspects of his movies especially his early zombie movies were like written by james gunn and and that there's, there's none of the, the like using zombies to tell another story, right? Almost every zombie film is like racism or capitalism or there's none of that here, right? Like it's, it's, there's no secondary layer on top of this film that Zack Snyder is sort of using zombies as a metaphor for X, which is a lot of what the zombie like world always feels like. It's, it's a heightened sense of like, what do you use zombies to tell a story I don't about? Know, man. And I feel like, what do you think is? In this uh, well, it, I mean, it's kind of just kind of like let let people live uh, in the sense that like the zombies now are are in Vegas and they're just in Vegas and um, they're developing a pecking order in a sense, uh, like you know, of a of a society. Um, mm-hmm. Something that happened in this where like you know like. And, the you know like the the humans want to like get in get inside and there's an ulterior motive where the government people want to you know capture like the alpha female zombie i think to like to weaponize her um and like shit hits the fan because like the queen zombie is killed um so i don't know i i don't know what it is but i feel like they're trying to say something about you know like just like military or corporate America coming into a situation where people are just trying to be who they are or something. 
Um, I don't yeah. know. Um, yeah, sorry. I think Dave Batista. I, I think Dave Batista is good. I think he's believable. I think a lot of times when there's an emotional connection to a character, it's right before they're about to die, so we have a reason to be like, "Oh no!" Um, I, I don't think they do a really good job of setting up a lot of the like the the emotional stakes. Mm-hmm. I feel like like there's one woman who's killed, and at the, like the moment before she dies, she like literally tells somebody like, "I really wish we could have gotten back. To, I wish we could get back together. I was really waiting." And 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 like seconds later, that person dies, and I'm like. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> like what, what, how do, how am I supposed to feel about this? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, it, I, I just don't know that they, there's a lot of ground setting for the emotional stakes either. Like, I, I think there's no, there's not a, there's a, not as much fun in this film as I was hoping mm-hmm. for. And I think there's a lot of money on the screen. And I think, well, there's a zombie, there's that, a zombie tiger. There is a zombie so tiger. Um, and the zombie tiger is not used as much as I well, thought. Well, that thing when, is damn expensive. It, I'm sure to, to render. Yes. So, uh, I can't. But imagine. there was a real tiger um, that they put little dots on. I think it's in in scenes oh, cool. to to get the motion, the performance capture. I think or something. I don't know. Yeah, I, cast is crazy uh, across the board. I really was impressed with it, what he was able to pull together for this film. Um, I always love when I see Theo Rossi pop up. He's so much fun as sort of the jerk security guard, mm-hmm. and then you know he's just fun. Right. He was in Emily the Criminal, like he was in Sons yep, of Anarchy. Yep, yep, yeah. So he's one of my favorite that guy. Like every time I see him, I'm like, oh, it's it's Theo. That's cool. Um, and there's some other people in it who are really fun. Like I, you know, I would call out anybody who's part of the mob of like guys who guys and ladies who are going in. Right. You've got uh, Anna De La Rigera who plays Maria Cruz, uh, Omari Hardwick. Um, you got Garrett Dillahunt, who's been in a billion things as sort of the representative of the big corporation. Um, you've got Dieter, who's fun, right? Like Math- uh, Matthias Schrager. <laughs> nice, nice, nice uh, attempt. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say. Uh, I'm tapping out. I, I'm not saying anybody else's name well, at this point. Uh, the movie's fun. They're, they're not to blame. I just think that Zack Snyder needs a uh, probably a, a story editor uh, and, and sort of somebody who can stand up and say, like, I don't think the story's heading in the right mm-hmm. direction. Uh, and then I think, you know, honestly, he has a vision, but it would be really better for him to work closer with cinematographers that can help him execute Mm -hmm. the vision. I think he's got a good eye and he does a lot on his own anyway, but having somebody else to partner with him, I always think makes his films better. I think when he's sort of the sole creative at the tip of the spear, it feels like there's always something a little bit missing for me. Well, with, with his films, I think that they always um something always happens to them in the in the editing room where i i'm like i liked it but it was it was it wasn't great and then i see a director's cut or an ultimate edition or a or a snyder cut or whatever you want to say and i'm like god damn this guy's (laughs) got like um like i am one of the maybe one of the few people who is a huge fan of sucker punch and i don't try to analyze it and i don't and, uh, and you know i don't try to like i'm just like blown away by by uh the crazy visuals and and short stories that he that he's um was able to put together but then you see the director's cut and you're like oh there actually was a kind of a story here so i don't know yeah he it he always seems to excel excel when there's a director's cut available or they let him you know they let him revisit his scenes um or his 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 movies but maybe that's i mean if you're Maybe if you're a talented filmmaker or I don't know, you know, like some people are like, there shouldn't have to be a director's cut. You know what I mean? 
It's like yeah. if you can if you can make your movie and that's the one you released, then it's like you're 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 ahead of the game. I don't know. I'm I'm babbling, but yeah. I will say you um, if you do like Army of the Dead, or if you kind of were interested in Army of the Dead at all, um, I would check out Army of Thieves, which is a which is an actual heist movie starring Dieter from this that takes place before uh-huh. this movie. It's a, it's like a prequel to this movie. It's on Netflix. It's oh, really cool. good. Um, let's jump to a movie that I really liked. Uh, let's jump over to a movie from 2008 called Let the Right One In. Uh, this film is the story of a... We, we open on a 12-year-old boy who meets a 12-year-old girl uh, or, or someone who appears to be a 12-year-old girl that you very quickly realize is not a 12-year-old girl and is probably a vampire. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. I think, uh, I don't know how to describe this film other than, uh, I could not, uh, I I wouldn't pause. I wouldn't step away. At one point I was like, I really should probably go, I I should go hit the men's room. And I'm like, I I have to pee and I I don't, I don't want to like, (laughs) I, I, the, the film is so well paced. Uh, it's, it's not short. It's not long. It's like right in that beautiful sweet spot. It's, it's an hour and 54. It, it, they, they could have probably cut a few scenes, but I don't think any one of the scenes in this film I would cut. I think every moment of this film, uh, you get to flesh out the story that's being told and without all the detail that's there, it wouldn't be as important. Um, I think the, this, the film is, there's a modern retelling of this uh, that was done in, in, in the 2020s. Um, this film was shot in, uh, where is this from? I think it's Scandinavian, isn't it? Yeah. Um, And so this film uh, follows uh, basically most of this film takes place around these two children, um, Oscar and Ellie, uh, Eli, uh, E-L-I is her name. I think he pronounces it as uh, Ellie, Uh, but they're both unbelievable. Like uh, apparently the casting went on for like two years to find the two of them because the film so much revolves around those two characters. Um, I, one of the things I heard about this when I, when I listened to a podcast about it was that John, uh, Lindquist, uh, who wrote it and wrote the novel it was based on, uh, doesn't like vampire f- films or, or material. Uh, so he wrote this story, uh, from the perspective of not liking right. them and felt he needed to write the book. And then he felt like he wanted to write it as a screenplay. Uh, it's really interesting to see the film from that perspective because, uh, it doesn't fall in or lean in hard on the vampire tropes really at all. Yeah. It's definitely, um, it's, ext- it's a very human story. It's, it's extremely human. Yeah. 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 I was heading right to that word. I think that's the, the best part of it, yeah. right? Like she is, uh, she's obviously older. I think uh, at one point there's an illusion of the fact that she's about 200 years old um, and been trapped in a 12 year old's body for 200 years. Um, and, and it's just, it's got some like real connection between these children about their friendship. Like when he first meets her, uh, she's, she sees him stabbing a tree and it's obvious that he's like playing out in his head, uh, dealing with the bullies that he's been dealing with at school. And, uh, she's standing on top of a jungle gym and, and she starts to talk to him and he's, and she's just like, I can't be your friend. And he's like, well, maybe I don't want to be Mm -hmm. like, and it's this great, like, instant chemistry between these kids. And the second time they come together, they're sitting at that same jungle gym and he hears her behind him. And there's like a small smile on the actress face. Like she's back. Yeah. Like, and it's, it's very, the, the interactions between them are so 
Um, she is not innocent, but their interactions are very innocent and sweet. Um, and I think it's, it, it's, it's one of the films I would say I've, I've enjoyed the most in the last few months. I, I, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was shot well. I think it, it's, it's way of telling the story has an even hand. I think even the scary aspects of it or the jump cutty aspects of it are done in a way that are, are, uh, they're almost done in a way that allows you to just take it in. This is just the world that mm-hmm. we live in. Nothing feels fantastical, yeah. right? Like even though she moves quickly, even though she can fly, right? Like all those things happen. All of it just feels pragmatic. Yeah. Like, of course, absolutely. You know, um, even they even press the trope of what happens if she doesn't get permission to come into place and you see her body start to react yeah. to that. And I think that is one of the coolest ways I've seen that handled. Yeah. Uh, and I think they don't, yeah, they don't, they don't try to go too much into like the mythology or why or how or this or that. It's no. just like, it is what it is. And you kind of learn, you learn the parameters of the world that, that they're living in at, you know, in real time in a sense, yeah. um, which I thought was really cool. Um, funny, funny, not a funny fact, but side note on this is they, they turned this into um, a stage play that I got to see. Um, I think, I don't know where it premiered over in the UK and they brought it over to New York and they had it in a a theater out in Brooklyn. It was a really well done. I mean, I think that this story is so cool and it's, um, you know, it was, like I said, it was a stage play. Hollywood redid it and it was called let me in with, um, what's her name? Uh, Chloe. Is it Chloe? What's her yeah so she i think she in uh 2010 she did a version of this um and then now apparently i just by kind of pulling up the imdb and um i didn't know that showtime has a a tv show version of this oh it's chloe moran right uh yep but yeah so let let the right one in is also a television show on showtime at the moment has anyone seen it out there who's listening I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I was I was never even aware of it. I, I saw. So this is a movie that has been on a couple of different streaming services. Right now, it's on Hulu and it's on Apple, uh, Amazon mm-hmm. Prime. Um, and I it kept coming across it on Hulu, and and I think I watched the trailer three times before I realized it was the same film. And I kept putting it on my queue. <laughs> uh, and and I, I watched the trailer, and then I watched it with my wife, and I was like, "What do you think?" And she's like, "I'm out." And I was like, "All right, cool." And my wife is away. So that, that plus, you know, COVID booster. And I was like, I'm getting through films that she's never going to watch with me. So that's why I also watched a bunch of spooky season films. Nice. Um, this was really fun. Uh, I loved it. I, I would highly suggest it. If you are looking for sort of a, a, a very human horror film, this is the way I would describe it. It's, it's genuine. It's, it, it has a, like an innocence and intimacy about it that you don't see in films like this, uh, in this genre very often. And uh, I, I absolutely adored it. I think it was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's it's definitely, this is definitely the perfect time for you as in the, the listener to, to watch, yep. put this on your spooky season uh, watch list. Absolutely. Um, and the, the final sequence is one of my favorites I've seen in a very long time. Uh, no, no, no spoilers, but that, op- that, that finale is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the purge. Uh, I finally saw the purge, the original film with Ethan Hawke. Um, and, uh, Lena Headley, uh, yeah. Makes sense. Sounds about right. Um, yeah. So the movie that sort of kicked off the purge franchise, um, and I think it was good. I I don't think I would say it was great. I think it was exactly what I thought this film would be. I think John and I both joked about the fact that we had 
I had never seen the purge and I don't think he's seen the yeah. purge, but he's seen one of one of the sequels. And I had also seen one of the sequels. Uh, so I think I saw purge anarchy mm-hmm. and he may have seen election year or something oh, like maybe that. That was the one. So, I've seen. Yeah. So uh, really funny to like get to what this world is. Then there's like a purge year one or the first right. purge, which I haven't seen yet. And then there's a purge television show. Right. So there's a lot of purge material out there. If you're looking well, for this, it, uh, I will say watch this. Yeah. One. Cool. Uh, this this is a really well, good starting yeah, point. And it's really the one that kicked it off. So you know, and yeah. and I liked Purge Anarchy mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah, I didn't feel like I even needed this movie to understand what that movie was. But this movie really, uh, it's not as it's not as small as I thought mm. it was. Um, there's a lot of uh, people who I I feel like I've talked to in the past that have said the this movie is sort of claustrophobic. Uh. And, and I don't think I would say that about this film. I would say this film feels to me um, a lot more like it is a bigger film than I was expecting for this to be the, the starting point of this franchise. I felt like uh, from the way I was alluded to in the past that uh, Ethan Hawke's character lived in an apartment and, and was basically captured in his apartment. And this is not, it's like a palatial estate, you know, it's like a big house in the suburbs and uh, a lot goes down in that house, but um, it is, not as claustrophobic as I thought it was. Um, and, and I think that is to its benefit. I think you get a lot more uh, spatial fun in the movie of the horror aspects of it. And uh, I think there's a lot more going on in this film than I expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and this is a, it, this, I, I believe, isn't this a Bloomhouse situation? It is. Yeah. So, you know, that's kind of what Bloomhouse makes fairly inexpensive movies and they can get A-list stars, uh, you know, like Ethan Hawke, uh, because they promised them money on the back end. So it's like, do this movie and it will be a hit because we're making it for cheap and then we'll get a lot back and you'll get some of that. So, but I think, I feel like The Purge is one of the movies that put, one of them that put Bloomhouse on the map. And now they're kind yeah, of like the go-to for like this, this kind of lower budget, but, you know, you get really A-list celebrities and actors to do them kind of situations. Yeah. And this this feels like it was shot in a short period of time. So much of it takes place in that house. Um, I think there's, uh, uh, there's some great like uh, smaller roles that are played by people that um, really steal scenes. Mm -hmm. Um, The, the actor who plays the polite leader of the people who come to the house is Reese Wakefield. And uh, boy, that guy looks like he could be like a cartoon uh, version of the Joker brought to life in this Mm -hmm. film. He has this like sly, soft, curled smile that uh, and his demeanor is so like sociopathic. Um, He's great in it. Uh, He really every time he's on camera, I'm I'm immediately drawn uh, to his unnerving demeanor. Yeah. Um, and he's really well done. Uh, there's a lot of fun in this film if you like weird, twisted horror films, uh, but it doesn't get that gory. It doesn't get that brutal. I feel like by the time he got to Anarchy, there was a lot more violence on screen where this one was a little more about like suspense and thriller mm-hmm. in my opinion. Right. Um, but yeah, it's not. It's one that I would say like on a spooky scale is probably like a three, oh. uh, whereas like let the, let the Right One In is probably a two in my opinion. Um, so, you know, if we're talking and, and our army of the dead is sort of a two ish would be my guess. Um, may, maybe a three, I think it has one or two jump scares that are a little, is that a five or out of 10? Okay. I was five. like, what? 
I was like, what's this gradient we're doing here? Um, I mean, Event Horizon is a 12 oh on a five-point scale, so I hate yeah. that movie. Um, let's jump over to the last film that we were going to talk about before we get to the main review, because we've been going a while. Uh, Werewolf by Night, our special presentation from our friends over at Marvel. What do you, what'd you think, John? Uh, I really like this. Um, I'm, I was pleasantly surprised um, on, a, on, a, on a couple things. So I had heard rumors that this was not going to be good and that... Um, and that it was going to be shorter than expected, and that um, and that um, Gail Garcia Bernal like hated wearing the the werewolf suit, so like there's barely any werewolf in it. And these are all rumors I heard going into it. So like, oh man, this is going to suck, and I'm really disappointed because I really want this to be good. And then I saw it, and you know this is you know th- this is like Disney paying homage to the you know the old black and white universal monster movies uh in all the best ways and i think that it pushes forward the mythology and mythos and the the it's expanding the universe of the marvel cinematic universe in all the good in all the right ways and i i give kudos to um michael giancino who usually does like um the film scores for a lot of films and this is his directorial debut. And, and I think he did a really great job. Uh, I would say I, I really loved there's, there's one real surprise in this that uh, is, is really a nice surprise. Uh, so I don't know that we need to spoil that, but I think uh, uh, the actress who's playing Elsa Bloodstone, the daughter of the, of Ulysses is Laura Donnelly. And she's, a, she's great. She, she has so many, uh, moments in this show where she gets to shine. Um, I think, you know, uh, Jack Russell, who is played by Gail Garcia Bernal, uh, is, is great. And I think their chemistry is really good with one another. I think there's some really fun sequences back and forth. Um, and I think, uh, it's funny cause, uh, apparently she left the family and the family's, uh, estate and things like that because she didn't, uh, for reasons. And there's this thought that she's not qualified to be the new bearer of the bloodstone, but it's obvious that she has not stopped training. Like she ends up doing the black widow, like head takeover uh, in one of the sequences. I'm like, so did she get trained by the black widows? Like, uh, you know, she going to like Scarlett Johansson school of fighting. Like it was, there's some fun aspects, but it felt like it was similar choreography, which I was surprised by. Uh, I think the story of this was really fun. I think, uh, the time, the time length was really interesting. I think this is a great way for Marvel to like introduce characters and to float a, a, a trial balloon of whether or not this character is going to be important or if the, the, the fans are going to stick to it rather than anchoring an entire show around them or even making a full film. I think this is really uh, could be a great way for them to introduce characters that can be uh, added into future installments of teams or I, so I just think this is like a, this is like the minor leagues uh, and they're, they're getting their reps on these characters to see who's going to become, you know, the next starter is what it feels like. Um, So I think that's it for uh, us uh, before we get to our main review. And we're finally there folks. Let's jump into our main review. So uh, this week we decided we were going to do a sci-fi film, an international sci-fi film that's available uh, streaming uh, in America. I think it's in a couple of theaters, but I think it's mostly a uh, video-on-demand situation called yeah, Vesper. I think the, called Vesper. Yeah, yes. the I think the easiest way for you to see this movie, if you're interested, 
uh, is definitely just uh, renting or buying it on on um, Amazon Amazon uh, Video or or iTunes or something like that. Yeah. Um, this is a movie that comes to us from IFC Films, mm-hmm. um, and it takes place in a you know a dystopian future where outside of these very illustrious citadel like cities um nothing can nothing can really grow they that we've we've messed up the world enough where um we can't grow any kind of crops and there are there there are no animals i believe uh, as well yep um and we follow along this young 13 year old uh girl named vesper and she believes that she's been able to biohack um, ways that people can um, finally grow crops uh, on their own. Um, I, I thought this movie was really interesting. What was your initial thought when you when you watched the movie? Yeah, uh, I think uh, we're in a dystopian f- future here, right? Where uh, I think it's. The, the way that this is set about is that uh, there was some some worry about food uh, crises and that uh, the large corporations uh, released or did some genetic hacking of the food supply and that caused uh, everything to sort of go sideways right nothing can grow right no animals uh, so yeah I was I was really taken aback by how prescient and, and real it felt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I, I texted John, uh, I was about halfway through it and I was like, bro, I'm watching Vesper. This movie is dark, man. Yeah. Um, it, it is not a, when, when people talk about a dystopian future, uh, this is it. Like, mm. you know, there's a lot of things out there that feel dystopian. This is real dystopian. This is, this is like kids blood being harvested. So it could be sold to the hit the citadels is one of the things it's an actual storyline that is going on. Like, yeah, it's it's kind of the only like the only um, currency is is the blood of children. Yep. And um, and uh, and um, if if you're going to watch this movie, do not eat while you watch this movie. Yeah. Um, I you know could be um, I was I was very impressed. There's a lot of you know there is some um, CGI in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, because the world isn't like there are trees and and, and things like that they just can't grow crops mm-hmm. but also something that happened when they messed up and biohacked the world there's weird like fung fungal organisms and you know there's like really weird things in the world and um like they're just like the, the carnivorous plants right like so the plants yeah. have like evolved i think the way to describe it is that they they were trying to prevent an impending ecological crisis by investing massively in genetic technology and that yeah. failed right like that's the plot from wikipedia and i mm-hmm. think what ends up happening is that genetic engineering that is being done to try to prevent this ecological crisis that's happening causes an ecological crisis right yeah it is uh sort of you end up in a situation where, uh, yeah, I think the, the, the fungus aspect of this is interesting, right? So lots of things seem to be running on bacteria because bacteria Mm -hmm. generate a lot of energy while they consume the things that are in the, in their orbit. And that energy is what's being used to fuel things. So there's a generator at a house that seems to be fueled on bacteria. Right. Um, So like things like that are really interesting. And I think are, uh, feel very grounded in science. I think that's the thing that 
a lot of times when you see a sci-fi film, especially a hard sci-fi film like this that is set in a not so distant future, it it feels fake. It feels this feels like it could be like 15 years from now. Right. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's the snow piercer problem, right? Like we thought mm. that we were having a problem in our climate. We shot something into the clouds. It caused this massive temperature drop to happen. And now we all need to live in a place that is constantly on the move because, because earth is uninhabitable. Yeah. This is that same kind of feeling, except yeah. it, it it's, it's much more grounded than snow piercer. Even the movie, the comic book, right. Uh, the, the television show it's, it's a lot more grounded and cause you're seeing it through the eyes of this 13 th- year old girl yeah, um, and, and her life and her father is, is paralyzed uh, because the companies or the corporations that own the citadels, he was working for them and got paralyzed. So they gave him like uh, basically like a full uh, uh, modern setup for him to be able to live in his bed. Uh, so like a, a, a breathing apparatus connections to a, a, a what eventually turns out to be like a floating robot, uh, not robot, but a floating uh, artificial intelligence bot that he's controlling. So he has yeah, control it's like, of and yeah. can speak through. Um, and again, even that felt extremely grounded. None of it felt polished or shiny. It, it felt practical and pragmatic. Uh, yeah. the, the bot is like a box that seems to like float on, on fan power. Well, I, th- I, it, I mean, to me, whenever so when this bot thing is, uh, yeah, it lo- it looks like a, flo- a floating, um, like a floating head, like a floating pumpkin. Yeah. Um, you know, it's and it's not shiny and it's not pretty and it at all. Like a, a, a the the uh, from the world of Doctor Who, the Cybermen. Mm-hmm. So the Cybermen have this sort of like squared off head that has a handle on top. It feels right. like it's that, except instead of a face, it's drawn on. I think by yeah. the daughter. Yeah. Like just just a smiley face on the box, you know? Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, and it talks to her throughout the whole the whole thing. This is, It's like mostly the only way you hear the the father's voice is yeah. when he's talking through this apparatus, this this almost prosthesis that he has yep. um, where he can, you know, be a little bit mobile. And, um, you know, I, I was really looking closely at him like this thing is practical. Yeah, I believe maybe 98% of the time. And because it, it, it's just, it's like they took a drone and they put something around it. Cause you can see the four fans and whenever, you know, like when you, when you see the movie and you, you see the scenes with this, this like probe droid thing or other, um, you kind of clock that they had to do a lot of ADR to the, like they had to redub the voices and I'm assuming that's because the fans for that drone were so damn loud. Yeah. You also see like there's beautiful shots of her like walking in the forest along like a uh, like a stream and the the and you're like, wow, there's a lot of stuff moving on the ground. And I was like, oh, is that because it's like biohacked weird yeah. like things I'm like, no, those are the four fans from the drone pushing things <laughs> out of the way. And it was a really nice touch. It's like, again, like it's just a that. I think with with movies like this, which I, I'm assume don't have a huge budget, but they may do with what they had. And like, that's a lot of times that's where the magic comes from. It's like you have this, now you have this like incredible character with this like drone thing that um, you really get to like, you know, I, I, I started feeling for this darn drone. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I think it was really impressive. Uh, I think 
it, it only, according to Wikipedia, only cost 5 million euro to make, uh, which is wow. extremely impressive given the film they create. Um, yeah. There's also this idea that there are uh, beings that are created in labs that are called called jugs, jugs um, and, and they have a slightly different look than everybody else. And um, yeah, it's, it, you know, it, this almost reminded me of if so not not to cast crazy aspersions but like i didn't love walking dead as a television show i thought it was i, I, I liked the first season a lot and mm. i didn't really love the post season two it felt like it really meandered a lot uh yeah. and and i didn't love that way but i love the comic it was based on and i felt like when i pictured in my head the future that we were creating a lot of it felt like this in that mm. in that world and yeah. I also think, you know, I, I made the joke to, uh, I think it was to my wife when I saw the original trailer for this. I'm like, this is one of those moments where I was like, yeah, man, like five episodes into issues into Walking Dead. I'm like, it's not the zombies who are the dead, man. It's the living. <laughs> and I felt like I had that same feeling in this movie. I'm like, yeah, oh, God, uh, they, they, they. I don't know that any of them are going to live to be old. Like right. we may be in a post like apocalyptic society where no one gets over 20. Like, right. Um, and it just had that feeling to me of like, all this feels inevitable. And that's why Vesper, the, the character is so exciting because she is sort of doing self-taught like bio uh, hacking and, and bio analysis in her home. She has mm-hmm. a lab, she has a greenhouse and she's been, basically genetically engineering plants to do things that the plants she finds in the real world don't do. So she's doing things to make them less violent, to make them more colorful, to make them more. Mm -hmm. So there's a ton of things that she's doing. And that leads to a character like there, there's a, a, the Citadel where people still live, which is sort of like a protected aspect of the world. It's like the rich people and yeah. like the corporate people. Yeah. They, they have ships that fly over this area. So the that looks like mosquitoes. They do. Yeah. And uh, honestly, it, we don't see a lot of it, but it's really cool and feels futuristic. Yeah. Um, but it feels, again, pretty practical. Like mm-hmm. um, it feels like it could be the natural outcropping of how would you make a flying car? Yeah. Um, it, it, to me, when I first saw it, I was like, yeah may not be the shape of a car that I would expect, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that that just kept happening to me in this film, but uh, p- there's a crash that happens of people from one of the citadels and that leads to the whole major story. Um, I, I honestly think we've been running long. I don't know that we need to get into the actual plot twist and things like that. This is a film that if you like sci-fi and you're interested at all in dystopian futures, you should watch this film. I am, I'm a huge fan of this type of genre. I love yeah. Bioshock, like alternative future history, dystopian futures. I love all of that. This yeah. feels like it could be set in things go bad in 2024 <laughs> and we're now <laughs> yeah. at 2032, right? Like, yeah. so uh, it, it's, it's unbelievable how pragmatic and real uh, this film, this sci-fi film feels to me. And, yeah. and it's just, everybody feels real. The, the man who is uh, playing the father who's paralyzed, he has this ability to like show concern and contempt and worry on just his eyes. And, you know, like, and, and Vesper is very quiet, but like extremely evocative in, yeah. you know what she's thinking, right? Like there's a lot being done by these actors without words. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, her, you see her hope, come through early on in the film 
And, mm-hmm. and that's what the film hinges on. And we've been talking about this dystopian future where everything's terrible. And Vesper is this like beacon of hope. Like they're, yeah. you know, she's making sludge for food because that's all they eat. And the bowl's dirty and, and you know, all this other stuff. And there's like, it's basically like a protein sludge and she throws in mealworms. Yeah. And, and you watch her eat this and you're like, ew. But like, it's practical, right? She's yeah. just like, I need fuel basically you know like she's 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 grown up in a world where food is just a fuel to keep you moving you know um and the same thing for her father so she she basically he has like a like almost a reverse catheter uh like a a, like a a reverse colostomy bag where he basically gets food pushed into his stomach from a bag and it's again very practical feeling right like yeah i felt like everything um from from like um costume design to to set dressings to the the technology that they were used and how it was designed everything seems so well thought out yeah um and and just like executed so well in this movie um and it, there's there's almost like a meticulousness to it even though it's like it it's like a it's a it's a very dirty movie yes like the world they live in is not clean yeah um but yet it seems also very meticulously done in such a great way. And what they were able to achieve on on the budget that they had, uh, I'm, I'm blown away. And, and I would imagine that because they had such a small, you know, budget, um, they probably don't have a very big budget for distribution and and promotion of this movie. And that's probably why many of you, uh, who are listening haven't heard of this movie or maybe it's just going to get a wide hopefully it gets a wider release or something or yeah. some gets some sort of recognition besides you know uh, geek on film yeah um i wish uh, i wish this would be nominated for the international film from uh so i, I don't know which country would own it it's it's both mm-hmm. france and lithuania i think had something to do with this film uh-huh. Um, but boy, I would love to see this come in and get a nomination. I think it's one of the most unique films I've seen all year. And I don't think yeah. I'll ever not think about this. Like this is one of those films I'll be coming back to. Uh, yeah. One note in the production that I really liked that came from their press kit is that the cinematographer, and I won't butcher this person's name, uh, said they were inspired by uh, the paintings of uh, Vermeer and Rembrandt for the lighting. So wow. that like the idea that like, everything in this world feels warm and dirty mm-hmm. yeah. right? is the way I would describe it. You know, like yes. the bed that the father's in is not clean. Neither is the blanket he's wrapped in, but yeah. he also doesn't move. So yeah. I, there are times where I'm sure that when Vesper is putting food into his, into his stomach that like a drop of it will fall. She's not good about, she's not careful about putting food into the bag. Right. Like, so there's some yeah. on the outside. So everything just feels like it's on purpose. I think that's the thing that I kept re- resonating with is like, Oh yeah. But yeah. 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 And, and that's, that's, you know, it, it sounds like it's a negative, but it's actually, everything feels grounded and real. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and that's exciting, especially when you're in a sci-fi, when you go to tackle something that looks like it could be this like hard sci-fi and not very um, human in its nature. There's a lot of humanity in this dystopian future that I wasn't expecting. Yeah. And, and, um, and you know, because we're following this like young girl and like we're, you know, she's full of optimism and stuff in ways and, and, um, and the world is really affecting her. I don't know. There is 
like I think in the trailer, like someone reviewed it in some place and said it was kind of like a modern day fairy tale. And I, I would agree with that too. There's there are there there are fairy tale aspects. Yeah, I think in this in a modern way, you know what I mean? Well, that that um, final sequence feels very like right out of could could be right out of fairy tale law lore. Y- yeah, you know. Yeah, and you know who knows like Jack and the Beanstalk, like magic beans or something yeah. like that. You know, like um. Yeah, I I'm I'm so impressed with this movie and I just hope that it gets more more recognition somewhere. I, I think my big you takeaway know? is I'm so excited to show this movie to Amy cuz Amy mm. loves dystopian futures, but there's yeah. a gr- there's a griminess and and darkness to this film that I I want to see how she reckons with like cuz it gets really dark like 40 minutes yeah. in. And then it, well, it does regain some hope, but that, there's a there's yeah. a moment forty minutes in where you're like, everything's about to go really south. <laughs> yeah, and the, it's crazy too because like just getting back to like, um, you know, just like the research and development and like like when when someone gets hurt or unconscious or or maybe let's say someone passes away and they're just kind of left in the woods, all of a sudden these like giant organisms start eating them in yeah. the sense of like that's that's kind of the circle of life it's like these yeah. giant like biohacked weird things start like latching onto them to kind of like it's like but they're and it's like they're like repulsive but yet beautiful but yeah. yet you can't look away but again like i was eating my lunch while watching <laughs> this and i'm like oh i can't eat anymore or maybe i'll never eat again um I, I think, uh, you know, for me, uh, I, I couldn't be more thumbs up on this film. I, I yeah. think you are also. Yeah. Uh, so I, my big suggestion is if you've listened to this and you and you think that you align to the way that John and I feel about film, uh, th- this is one that you should you should rent uh, yeah. or buy or go see it if it gets a wider release. Yeah. It, it or is, all of those things. Yeah. yeah. I bought it because I, I so I, I bought it on Apple because Apple had a 4K release of it and it cool. wasn't 4K in other places. So, uh, it, it's gorgeous. It, it's gorgeously grimy. It's gorgeously warm. Yeah. And like, it, yeah, it's, uh, and the music's it, incredible too. It really is such a great score. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can't wait to revisit this with my wife. I really, I think it's one of those that's going to be really fun. Uh, and if this ever got, uh, like a larger 4k release, uh, in physical media, I would buy it in a heartbeat. Cause this is the kind of film that like, if I was going to program a couple of days of a film festival, this is one that I would show, especially if it was sci-fi in any way, shape or form. Like, mm-hmm. boy, let me let me open your eyes to what you can do with a little bit of money and a really good idea and, yeah. and some amazing vision uh, of, yeah. of a cinematographer and director. Like, oof, yeah, what what an amazing film. Yeah. Wow. I think we just wore ourselves out. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's just say, uh, if you're still here, thank you so much. Uh, we're, we, as always, uh, please, uh, feel free to comment, uh, rate and review us anywhere you're at, uh, that you're listening to this. We're geek on Film.com on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, I'm Robbie, the geek everywhere. John is John Hosh everywhere. Um, feel free to track us down. Let us know what you thought. Um, I think the last thing I would say is, uh, next week we're going to be going to the Middleburg film festival. So, uh, yeah, John and I are going to be together in person, which is exciting, uh, for four days of, uh, back to back to back to back films is what it feels like. Uh, the schedule looks crazy. We're going to, he's getting here and we're going to sit down and work on a schedule so we can talk about all these films. Uh, I'm excited because there's a bunch of films that, uh, are, 
that have been in other film festivals and I've heard people talk about. I can't mm-hmm. wait to get a chance to see some of these films. I think, you know, um, Glass Onion is there. We're going to see, you know, White Noise is there. The Whale is there. Um, the Banshees of Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran uh, uh, I'm trying to think of other ones. Uh the uh, all's quiet on the Western front. Uh, so like, you know, big national splashy films, big cinematography, big cinema films, like yeah. smaller international films. There's, uh, you know, so much going on at that film festival. I'm so excited to go. Uh, and I'm so excited to get a chance to do it with John. Like this yeah. is sort of a, an exciting aspect of us doing geek on film was we talked about what, what would it, what, what could we do? And, and a film festival together is one that I think is really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm totally on board and excited, um, and I'm excited. Uh, I mean, I think with us going down there, um, I don't know where, what what will happen next week as far as reviews go, uh, but we'll we'll see what happens and stay tuned, and we're going to keep you guessing and on the edge of your seat. <laughs> My guess is we'll we'll at least have a good summary of uh, of what we saw. Uh, maybe just to sort of, uh, without us going into deep reviews of each of the movies that haven't been released yet. Uh, mm-hmm. but I do think we'll have a few things to talk about and I'm sure we will have some television we have to catch up on. Uh, so I'm sure that Andor and She-Hulk and, and, uh, Rings of Power and House of the Dragon will all be things that we'll be covering. Uh, yeah. at least hopefully if John gets to watch House of the Dragon, maybe on his, uh, after he gets home on Monday. Um, <laughs> but it's going to be a, a, a lot, uh, for us to get through in the next, uh, seven days. Uh, yeah. So I, I'm excited for us to do that and hopefully bring you all along on the process, uh, whether it's uh, in, in us reviewing it uh, next Monday and, and making it available to you later in the week, or if it's uh, us capturing sort of the main reviews of all the films that we want to use to map out to the release schedule. So mm-hmm. that's a possibility that we've talked about also. So we're, we're playing it by ear and trying to figure it out. If you have a suggestion, feel free to reach out to us at podcast at geekonfilm.com or uh, on any one of the social media uh, aspects we mentioned before. Yeah. Thanks for listening again. And um, yeah, we'll see you soon. Talk to you later. Bye. This has been a Geek on Film podcast. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.